Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone, this is going to be very easy if Roy gets a big round of applause just for saying hello. Um, welcome, welcome to you all. Thank you so much for coming to um, Armory House and these wonderful surroundings. I did hear that West Ham were thinking of moving here if they got relegated, but they didn't. Um, I'm Alison Rudd, I'm um, a sports writer for the Times, and this is a special Times Plus World Cup event uh, exclusively for subscribers to The Times and The Sunday Times. Uh, joining me on the panel to answer my questions and yours are, on my far left, um, Matt Dickinson. He is an award-winning chief sports writer for The Times, and when he goes to Russia to cover the World Cup, it will be your sixth World Cup? It will, yes. In my experience, people who are called chief sports writer, once they've been to seven, they become a bit smug, so he's okay for tonight. <laughs> Next to him is Tony Cascarino, a former Chelsea striker who also writes for The Times and has experienced what it's like to play at a World Cup, most notably at an Italian IT, that wonderful, wonderful World Cup, which I think is most people, if they're over 35, 40, is their favourite one. And next to him is Roy Hodgson. If I was to read you his CV in full, by the time I finished, there'd be a bloke um, ringing a bell and shouting last orders because this man has managed at club level across Europe. He has taken two nations to World Cup finals. And uh, just to fast forward, uh, this last season he's just performed beautifully at Crystal Palace where he inherited an absolute comical mess and turned it into a beautiful fairy story. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the panel. The format is very simple. We're going to chat um, about the season just gone. We're going to talk about how we did it at Crystal Palace. And because we've got a few Fulham fans in the audience, it would be wrong not to talk about the playoff final. And hot on the heels of that, it should be illegal, but straight away it's the Champions League final. So we'll have a chat about that. And then we will talk about what we expect to happen at the World Cup. And we're gonna, I'm going to bookend it. I'm going to start with the World Cup as well because I think people are still talking about the 23 players chosen by Gareth Southgate. Uh, and one of them, I think, was a probably a slight surprise to some, but not to Roy, which is Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who's a Chelsea player who's on loan at Crystal Palace. And I wondered, Roy, if you could explain why you... Well, I think you probably know why Gareth Southgate has decided to take him to Russia. Well, he's really got all the qualities you're looking for in a central midfield player. I mean, we don't play with wide players. In actual fact, our, we were forced to put our two wide players up front very early in the season due to injury problems that we had. So, in actual fact, our two wide players have actually been Loftus-Cheek and MacArthur, both of whom are, by trade, really more central midfield players. But I've got to say, that in the games he's played, he is been probably our best player in almost every one of them and that says everything. I mean, 
I'm just pleased that Gareth and, and Steve Holland, who knows him extremely well, of course, the Chelsea coach, who now works with Gareth Southgate for England, they obviously liked him and liked what they thought he could do. They'd enjoyed watching him play for us and do well. And uh, fortunately for, for Ruben, they kept faith with him. And when he got back and played for us again and played well, they put him in the team. And I've got to say, I, I've not worked with many better players in my career than Ruben Loftus-Cheek certainly can be. I mean, he's, you know, got to be careful talking about a guy who probably doesn't have more than about 20, 25 Premier League matches to his name. So let's, let's just, let me tinge all the praise I'm, I'm gushing out for him here with that, that he, you know, we, when he's played for four or five years on the trot and gets up to 2025 England caps, uh, then maybe people will say I was right. But I think potentially he, he's got uh, the chance to be a really, really top player, both at Premier League and international level. And certainly I, I will stick by uh, the statement that he's one of the best players in midfield I've actually worked with because he, he doesn't have any weaknesses, literally doesn't have any weaknesses. And he'll get better with every year, just like so many of the England players have got better year by year. You know, they, some of them started in... One or two started 2012, quite a few started 2014, others started 2016. And every year I see them getting better because they play Premier League matches and they play Champions League matches. And that experience can't be bought, it has to be earned by getting onto the field of play. Matt. Very long answer, I'm afraid, but there you go. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to be quite so, you know, complimentary because. I think he's good. I didn't think he was that good. No, he's a player. No, he's a player. What, is, what needs to happen, Matt, for him to start against Tunisia? Um, he's got to basically get ahead of Lingard or Deli Ali, I think. Um, I mean, looking at the way Gareth, we obviously spoke to him, Gareth, yesterday, um, and he made the point himself. The last four matches, it's set up basically 3 5 1 1, Sterling in the floating role behind Kane. And that five across midfield, certainly against Panama and Tunisia wrong other way around in the opening two games you would think you only need one sitting player you don't need sort of belt and braces probably Dyer and Henderson so you're one sitter and two if spilling water all over myself two number eights um, that would be the sort of box to box players and Lingard is a Southgate favourite um, Deli Alley was left out of a couple of games for lack of focus in March so he's got a bit to prove but I think there's a lot of talk around coaches, around the camp, that Loftus-Cheek could be the one who sort of surges through and, and grabs one of those places. Do you, do you agree, Tony? You, well, if in the two friendlies coming up, do you think he'll, he could leapfrog and start? Well, what Loftus has got is an incredible composure. When I look at someone who's six foot, what, two, three, boy? Six foot three, I think, yeah. Six foot three, and he's been compared to Michael Ballack, and you can see why. I saw him get a goal against Leicester and where he just wrong foots the keeper and you, you know, looked like a guy that was so much more agile and smaller. So comfortable on the ball. Look, Chelsea invested a huge amount of money in him as a youngster. They recognised he was going to be a real talent. Um, it's not surprising anybody involved in Chelsea Football Club that Loftus-Cheek, you know, Roy's speaking in glowing terms about Loftus-Cheek, but they are aware that he was the special one, that they wanted him to go out alone. Unfortunately, Roy was, you know, obviously he's experienced having a player of that quality come into his team, but he's still got to do it. I was shocked by how composed he was because he took it so in his stride, coming into the Premier League, getting on the ball, both footed. And I mean, there was one incident in the Leicester game where wasn't there when he gets it out, out wide and it literally wrongs wrongs two players in one mm. moment, doesn't he? Can do that. Let's not forget. I mean, as well, his, his uh, England debut was against Germany. I think Germany at Wembley, big game, mm. and. At one stage, he was nutmegging Lam or something. I mean, you know, he was instantly like, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to show, you know, I've got a limited amount of time to show how good I am and I'm going to do it. And um, the fascination is, as we're saying, is he going to get the games? Is, is he going to be back at Chelsea, the parent club? Um, we were talking just before we came on, Ross Barkley's there. Remember him? Um, <laughs> You know, he was, he was the future um, only a year or so ago. So it's, but he has, you feel that he's got an intelligence. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the thing. That I, is the big difference with yeah. Loftus-Cheek. Yeah. There's an intelligence there. You can see it when There are less, less doubts over his all-round game than over Barclays, yeah. definitely. And what about the players who are not going to Russia? 
I mean, Jack Wilshire, for example, <clears throat> made it plain he's unhappy and he feels he ought to have been there. Do you have sympathy? Any of you have sympathy? Do you think it's the right decision? Roy first, do you feel... And I know you, you think Jack yes. Wilshire, when he's fit, he's an excellent player. Yeah, he's a very good player, Jack. I had a lot of time for him. We were unlucky most of the time. When I say we, I'm talking about I and the coaching staff. We didn't have as much access to Jack Wilshire as we'd have liked because, of course, he had that terrible spate of injuries which, you know, kept him out. And every now and again he would come back for a few games and tease us. We took a chance taking him to the Euros um, only because, of course, he did have an, an exceptional talent. Um, but I, I would say he's been unlucky. But there are players now, Matt's just been talking about them, that have blossomed and, and, and made a name for themselves, I suppose, in, in Jack's absence, and that's worked against him. But there's no doubt that he's a very special player. Players that can eliminate people with the ball, people who can receive the ball in such tight areas, because, you know, the higher the level of football you play at, the tighter it becomes and the, the better your ball control has got to be. So players who can show that level of control, players who can eliminate people as quickly as people like Jack Wilshire can, they're very, very hard to find. You know, through the years in England, we've produced passers and supporters, people who receive the ball, pass it, and then support their pass. We haven't produced quite as many players who, in actual fact, you can give them the ball and then they'll eliminate people and, you know, create space for other people and find the passes which create goal chances for you. So, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that Jack hasn't found a place, but I understand for, for, for Gareth, he's been quite blessed in recent years, you know, with the emergence of people like Deli Ali, now Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Jesse Lingard's a different type of player, but at least we're talking about people in the same ballpark. Were either of you, was there like a groaning disappointment about someone that you felt should have been picked who wasn't? Well, I think if you go back to last season when Arsene Wenger decided to go go out alone on Bournemouth. Him not keeping Jack at Arsenal was a bit of a telling story to me. Obviously, he'd had a lot of bad injuries. Now, we all know Jack's a player. I don't think there's any question about that. We all know he's a talent. But he goes to Bournemouth, in and out of the team at times. Didn't, you know, wasn't a firm fixture in the, the team. So this year was a massive year for Jack, how well we had to play. I felt we had to literally knock the door down and perform games, take control of central midfield and dominate games. He did do that for certain parts of the season. Arsenal weren't desperate to keep him either, are they? They haven't exactly been pulling out all the stops to say, Jack, you're our man next year. So it's been a really difficult time for him. I feel sorry for him. I, you know, being an ex-player that played international football, you, sometimes you have to just take it. And I think Jack's reacted to it. Of course he's disappointed. You'd be gutted you're not going to the World Cup. But I don't think he's done enough for Gareth. Now, Gareth has a way of playing, how he wants to play, and we all touched on about speed and breaking and getting players into position. I think Gareth might have looked and gone, do you know what, I just, that's one I'll have to take. And he's obviously decided on Loftus, who we've just taken, you know, talked about, that maybe a, a, bit, a more athletic midfield. I think that's exactly it. I mean, speaking to Gareth about it, that's, you know, he doesn't want to overemphasise the need for just athleticism. And I think all of our hearts sink a little bit that Jack's not there. I remember watching a short-sided training session with Roy at the Euros, and you know, he, there was some, every time Jack got the ball, he would do something that you, others just couldn't, and, and he had that quality, but that was just a short-sided training session. This is Gareth Southgate, I think, very much saying they were worried about Jack's fitness in March. They did some sort of bleak tests, and, and he was struggling. And I think it's very much Gareth saying, this is a statement about the type of midfield player I want. And there is an emphasis on athleticism, certainly. Is there a mixed or conflicting message by saying Adam Lallana's not in the 23 because he's been injured, but he's on the standby list? Being on the standby list doesn't make you fitter if you need to go. I think he said, Gareth, was, and he was, you know, he was um, you know, coherent on all of these arguments. He did say that, you know, if it hadn't been for Adam Alana, a player they've had a lot of time for and has helped them a lot, he probably wouldn't even be on the standby list. So you could say there's a minor contradiction there, but he just he said that they just wanted, on the off chance that there is an injury in that position, they wanted this way, they were giving him an extra couple of weeks, potentially, to show a bit of fitness. But, I, you know, I, I think it's... So, yeah, you could say there's a minor indulgence there for a player they like, but he's a player they like. 
Tony, when we come to, maybe he never will, but if, you know, if Joe Hart was to write his autobiography, it could be quite a tragic story. He, he's, he's, his standing in the game has plummeted this season. Well, it started with Pep. The moment the manager comes into you, and I've been there myself, Ron Atkinson did it to me. I'm not comparing myself to Joe in any shape or form, but Ron not, Atkinson... not comparing Ron Atkinson to Pep either, <laughs> well, <I don't>... No. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Atkinson walked up to me at Villa and just went, you can go. Didn't say any reason, just said, I've agreed a fee, you can go. And I remember that feeling of rejection. Now that hurts, and you, as a player, and Joe's experienced that because it was pretty cutthroat, wasn't it, with Pep? You saw the, the images on the TV when they, on the training ground, and Pep, you can see that he's like, nah, you're out, I want you out of my club. And I think ever since then, Joe has had to have suffered because he goes out on loan in Torino. We don't know really how well he's doing. We know he's doing okay, but you know, he wasn't going to be kept there because of obviously financial issues. Then he goes to West Ham. He's in the team, out the team. And I think Gareth again has looked at and gone, can I take a ch chance? Now, again, we all know Joe Hart's a good goalkeeper. But sometimes you suffer because of circumstances. And the circumstances are that really three clubs, or West Ham, you say, or three managers, David Moyes has uh, had Adrian N, and then David, uh, then obviously Hart's come in. Pep's let him go. And he must have been affected. He had a couple of individual mistakes, which goalkeepers get absolutely pelters for. You know, they just do. If you make a mistake as a goalkeeper, it's not like missing a chance as a centre-forward. You, you just get literally taken out of the, the firing line. And that's what's happened to Joe. I feel I, sorry for him. I feel really do, do because, you know, yeah. World Cup at his age and that 70-odd caps. The Euros were tough for him, weren't they? Weren't they? Yeah. I mean, the thing is that uh, you've summed it up, Tony. It's goalkeepers in a, uh, an unenviable position to some extent. That you know, if they make a mistake, especially at the very, very highest level, i.e., you know, the goalkeepers frequently they don't get a lot to do. You know, in the games that I had, uh, certainly in the time I was with the team, I can't remember any any games really where the goalkeeper was under enormous pressure. I can remember lots of games where the goalkeeper hardly touched the ball. But of course, if then you make a mistake with if a goal goes in that people deem you could have saved, it's a, it's a disaster for you. And of course, if you don't get a chance to play regularly and Southgate's watching games every week and he's watching the other goalkeepers doing well, it's very, very hard unless he's going to be 100% sure of his facts that Joe Hart is technically and in every other respect a much better goalkeeper than these other ones. It's quite hard for him to pick him, really, because, you know, no doubt a lot of people say, well, how can you pick a goalkeeper who's not playing over a guy who is playing and doing very well? Did we you worried. notice it, Roy, with Joe? Because obviously Pep had happened in your time when you was England manager. Did you notice it? Well, it came. I mean, Pep took over, didn't he, in yeah. 2016, and there were, there were whispers and rumours, and that obviously did disturb Joe, I think, you know, during the, the, the years you could see he was concerned about his future because... Those whispers and rumours, the players get to hear them as well, and it, it does affect that does affect him. And it, at that time, it was all around his kicking, which I think is a very minor aspect. It's it's very nice if you've got a goalkeeper who kicks the ball well, but the thing you want most of all is a goalkeeper who keeps the ball at the back of the net. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Another player who is not going to Russia is Wilfred Zahar because he decided he couldn't be bothered waiting for England to pick him. I've got a bit of a bugbear about that. I think the FA should be really ruthless. Anyone who has potential to be a good player, they should make sure they keep them on side. Make false promises if you have to. Make sure they don't join another country. So Wilfred Zahar is now Ivory Coast, isn't it? Yes. So... Uh, but given the season he's had for Crystal Palace, surely sure. he would have been in Southgate's thoughts. That, I mean, he would have been. Do you agree with me that... I mean, you gave him his debut for England, didn't you? Yeah, but of course we didn't follow it up, so I, I must take some responsibility there. He, he went... Well, it's not your job. He, he was at Crystal Palace when we gave him his debut and was doing quite well and showing those enormous dribbling skills that he possesses and his ability to go past people and... We thought this could be interesting. He unfortunately took part in a debut at, in Sweden where after going 2-0 up and dominating the game, we contrived to lose it 4-2, which did actually affect my judgment on everybody after that game. <laughs> I couldn't believe that we, 
lost the game that we dominated for the, the best part of it. But of course he went to Manchester United then and then that's, that was the start of that year where he just didn't play. And to be, to be honest, by the time he, he got back to Crystal Palace and was playing again, you know, the, the, the ship had passed. I think the whole thing about international football <laughs> needs to be re-looked at, I've got to say. I, I find it, from the, from the days which I remember, I worked with a guy called Mike Kelly, who was actually quite a good goalkeeper for Birmingham and QPR. And he's Irish, of course. I mean, born in England, but as you can imagine, Mike Kelly, his mother was Irish, his father was Irish. They came over to North London. He was brought up in Holloway. But as an amateur, playing for women, he played for England amateurs. Played one cap, got one cap playing for England amateurs. Then, when he was called up finally, he couldn't play because he'd already played one match for England amateurs. He wasn't allowed to play a game for Ireland, which, you know, he was every bit as much Irish as he was English. Now we get a situation where players can play for England under 17, under 19, under 21, they can get an England B cap, they can play for England's first team and still go and play with someone else. I don't understand that. I really don't. I don't understand how in the swing, in the period of time I'm talking about, 20, 25 years, if you play one game for England amateurs, that's you finished, you can't go anywhere and you forget any other nationality you might have. To all of a sudden, you can play for a club. England, England brought Victor Moses over here. You know, we, England looked after Victor Moses. You know, he came over as a refugee, need to be looked after. England looked after him. You know, we made certain that he played in all the teams, even up to, up to under 21 level. Then all of a sudden, he goes and plays for Ghana. I don't really understand it. And I, I, I think that players, <laughs> it's just as much on them. I, 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 I'm not quite as strong in it as you are. You know, I think that if, if you don't want to play for the country enough, then maybe you're not missing quite that much. And of course, these players, these young players, they get a lot of people in their ears. They get their agents in their ears because they would rather have a player who's played some sort of international football to, to sell them and to sort of promote their cause. But most importantly, we get Didier Drogba. Didier Drogba and other players like Didier Drogba, they become ambassadors for the national. And they go around and they really work hard to get the, 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 the players changing nationality. Oh, come with us, you'll get to a World Cup, you're bound to play. In my experience, most of the players I've spoken to, especially the African ones, who I think you know, could have gone on if they'd have been a bit bolder, a bit more um, assured, if you like, of their own ability, most of them regret not having given it a bit longer, not re regret not having really tried and tested the waters with England before they jump ship and go and play uh, uh, abroad. So, but yeah, in short answer is he will be a he, I think he would have been a contender, there's no question of that, because he is a very good player. Do you want the man to speak to about I was going to say, I'm in trouble, you are. The very Irish, the, the Irish Tony Cascarino. Hey, my mum's name, I, if you know my mum's name, Theresa O'Malley. Doesn't sound the least bit Irish. <laughs> right, okay. No, well, obviously I qualified on my mum's side. My mum was possibly, from, possibly. from Mayo, Westport, but she was adopted. So there's, a lot of people know the story. Yeah. But under the adoption laws, you can play. And do you know what? I would say it was the best thing I ever did. Football-wise, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And like Roy said, if your heart's in it and you want to go and play... I mean, it was funny because we had a whole team of what Roy's been talking about, of... Ray Houghton. Good Scott. Good Scott. <laughs> when Jack said to Ray Houghton one day, that lad alongside you, Aldridge, can he qualify for Ireland? And Ray went, no. He went, just pick him. <laughs> and he picked him. <laughs> and he picked him. John Aldridge picked, got picked. So it was... <laughs> we, we, but I, I wouldn't question any of, the, any of the players that I played with at that time their conviction to play for Ireland because we all wanted to. I mean, some players got accused, Andy Townsend got accused of um, he wasn't going to be good enough for England, so he chose Ireland, um, which I would have disagreed with. I would have gone, Andy could have easily played for England in his time as a player. But I, I loved it. So I, I, the experience of playing for Ireland. Um, I would I have played for England? I went to World Cup 82. I went there as 
an England fan in Spain. I went there and watched the game. I remember watching Brooking and Keegan coming onto the pitch. And, but I, I went to a very Catholic school. My granddad was around me. He was a real man from Cork. He lived with me. I grew up and I remember telling him the first time I got called up for Ireland. And he, he never, ever said, well, you were born in England to me. Or, you know, he, he was absolutely delighted. So I, mean, yeah, I think I think that I certainly agree with Roy's point about the, the swapping yes, career. I mean, and levels and levels. Uh, yeah, I mean Diego Costa plays for the senior Brazil team and then decide you're Spanish. It's it's yeah, there certainly should be a level. You know, even if just because they're not on non-competitive games, but that that can't possibly seem right. No. I know there's the world becomes more confused. People globalization. People are moving around, so the rules need to be looked at closely. But that that seems wrong, isn't it? Growing adult, you decide, I'm playing for one, then, oh, actually, maybe not. When I played for Leighton Orient Ladies, <laughs> I was approached and asked, were your grandparents born anywhere but England? And I said, they were born in England. They went, drat, you could have played for Wales. That's how easy it was. But I never got a Welsh cap. because. You know. What um, position you were, was you, Alison? <laughs> what position did you play? I played off striker, Tony. <laughs> you never told me that. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a private joke. Private joke. Right, um, we're going to come back to World Cup talk, but uh, we have Roy with us, and we need to talk about the incredible season. I mean, Crystal Palace appointed Frank de Boer, and they lost their opening for league games. They couldn't score a goal, and they were playing strange hybrid of this is going to be total football. In the meantime, it's a bit of a mess. And Roy came in. Um, I don't think a manager has joined a club at that point ever before, actually. I can't, I can't remember a manager coming into a club with zero goals and zero points. And all the players I've heard speak or have spoken to have said they were impressed by, first of all, how calm you were. You went in with a, let's not panic, chaps. And you organised them and made them believe, which sounds easy, but it, there's... That's difficult. How did you tell us how you did it? Well, I feel sorry for Frank de Boer, to be fair. I mean, he, he was appointed, he was, he was singled out. He, the, the chairman went out of his way to persuade him to come to the club and obviously sold him the club as well. And when he came in, of course, he found a squad of players. He didn't add a great deal to it. There was the two lone players. One he brought in, Tim Fosu Mensah, of course. The other one that he, he, he signed from Ajax, Jairo Riedewald. And, of course, Mamadou Sako had been signed, but I'm, I'm certain he didn't have too much to do with that. That was based on the previous year, where Sako had had a good, a good January to, 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 to May and helped keep the club in the league. And I think he just probably set about, with his philosophy, you know, working with the players he had, and you know, it was pretty obvious early on that that was going to be difficult because... You know, the way Ajax play and the way they recruit to play is a little bit different to the, the, the recruitment that had gone on at Crystal Palace because, you know, for three years the club has been fighting relegation. In each year, the manager who started the season and been involved in bringing players to the club has gone in December, early January. Then a new guy has come in and used the January transfer players to bring other players in. So it just definitely was a little bit of a... Uh, a mixed bag of players in terms of styles of play. Um, we just made up our mind that uh, we, we knew it would be tough the first three games. I mean, we were hoping to do better against Southampton. But the problem with the Southampton game for me was that Steve Parrish had been talking to me for a period of time, but uh, in actual fact, I didn't actually get to the club, although um, I should have been there probably on the Monday. In actual fact... Uh, I eventually turned up Tuesday late afternoon after the training session had gone. <coughs> Wednesday was a day off, which gave me Thursday, and we played Saturday. And, of course, that's no time to get to know the players. We just played the team that had played against Burnley, because what else could we do? So we lost that one. And then we played Man United and Man City, which you know were, would have been tough games at the best of times, and that put a further nine goals against our goal difference. So by that time, we'd gone from minus 10 to minus 17, and from four games and no points to seven games and no points. But I must say that we always thought that looking at the players and, and, and seeing how responsive they were to the type of work we wanted to do, this isn't a lost cause by any stretch of the imagination. 
it's going to be very tough. Uh, I don't think we'll get there before the end. We always thought that the last two games might be the, the games where we would need to win both to, to, to save ourselves. Luckily, we did it a bit beforehand. And I think what's made the season extra special for me is the fact that we've done it um, with the worst injury crisis I've ever come across in my, in my football career. I've never had a situation before where ten senior players, uh, five of which <laughs> would have been you know, absolute shoeings in, in the first team, are all injured at the same time. And I've never been in a situation before either where you've put a team on the field thinking, well, yeah, this might just about be good enough. But you know that you've got no chance to change anything because there's literally nobody that's behind you that can go on and, and, and help you change things. Or if you get injuries, you're going to be in big, big trouble. So I think to, to survive that situation is to some extent, for me, the highlight of the season and a great credit to the players. And, uh, you know, there's a, you know, there's a lot of unsung heroes. You know, Wilf, of course, has got enormous credit. Luca, who, who was great right from the first minute, Luka Milivojevic, he's got plenty of credit lately. But there's, there's lots of people, you know, the Tomkins and the Kellys of the world, for example, the, the MacArthur's and the Townsend's uh, and these guys, they've done such a really, really good job for the team, um, week in, week out, without ever getting the real pats on the back. And it's a, it's a nice feeling now that uh, to look at a group of players and to celebrate an achievement with them. Because think about football players, and Tony will, will know this and might wish to expand on it. The only people really who know if any quality work is being done at a football club are the football players. And you'll never know that, because they'll never, they'll never they, if they're interviewed, they won't, they won't say. You know, they, they can't, you know, because they've got to be very careful. Um, they never know who's coming in afterwards and etc. etc. You know, so so for me, I know that the players this year they they are very comfortable with what they've done. They'll they'll go on holiday thinking, yep, I did everything I should have done this year as a professional football player. I train well, I work seriously, um, I worked at my game, um, I was very much a team player, uh, and luckily. You know, showing that faith in the team and the way the team set up and showing that faith in the way we work on the training field has paid off. And um, that, I think, really is the very simple answer to, to why we did well. A very responsive group of players, a very serious, a very uh, disciplined, professional bunch of players and players, really, who were happy to withstand, if you like, the onslaught of coaching to which they were, they were uh, subjected to, to make certain that we left no stone unturned when it came to how we want to defend and how we want to attack. And From the moment I got there, my judgment on a lot of players has changed enormously. You know, I, I, I never thought that Ruben would be able to give us the defensive solidity that he's done playing in that wider position. I didn't think Patrick van Arnhoek could give us the defensive discipline to go with his enormous talent. I never thought Martin Kelly could come in and be such an accomplished centre-half. And these, these, for me, are much more the things I'll take with me on holiday uh, and, you know, really uh, enjoy over a glass of wine, more so than the fact that Wilf Sahar's a fantastic player or, or, or uh, those sort of things. So. A long answer, I'm afraid, but I don't have a short way to it. You do know, because you saved Fulham from being relegated and then took them to the Europa League final, there are a lot of Crystal Palace fans thinking... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's always nice to have a dream, isn't it? <laughs> oh, well, let's fast-forward then to the following Saturday, where there's um, the playoff final, the richest game in history in the world... It's going to be Aston Villa or Fulham who, who reach the promised land. I know you're... Well, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say it. Your heart would be with Fulham. Yeah, I'm afraid presume, I'm pretty yeah. biased on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think also um, they're the two clubs that deserve to be there for different reasons. Yeah, I mean, one's, one's a team that has been in the making for a couple of years and Jukanovic has always done a fantastic job in nurturing some of these young players and nurturing a style of play as well, which is quite a bold and... Uh, 
brave style of play in some ways because uh, you know we were used to be told you can't play your way out of the championship and the league you can only sort of play simplistic football to get out of that league and Fulham have shown that that's definitely not true because they're you know they're right up there and Aston Villa have done it more through experience Bruce's experience Steve Bruce's experience but also Watching the team the other night, there's a lot of players in there, well into their 30s, who've got a lot of matches behind them. So I think it'll be a fascinating contest. And it's nice also, in some ways, if you're going to have these playoffs, that it's the, the, the third team and the fourth team that are trying to get that one place rather than the fifth and the sixth team. You know, there is something in me, ethically, which rails against a team finishing sixth and then getting promoted and a team finishing third that doesn't. Um, I know it's for the excitement, I know it's for the money, I understand all those things. But um, obviously, I, I think that will be a very interesting contrast to stars. Funnily enough, I saw the, the match at, at Craven Cottage in the league when Fulham played Aston Villa. And uh, they won't be easy to break down Aston Villa, but certainly they'll have their work cut out dealing with the, the style of play that Fulham have today. And not least of all, the, the pace and the... Uh, coming from the, from the wings in Cessignon and Fredericks. That's, uh, that takes a bit of dealing with. And also uh, a, a genialistic signing uh, in the transfer window of uh, the centre-forward, Mitrovic, who gave Polly one of the best displays of target play I've seen in a long while the other night. I've not seen a player use his body that well to hold the ball up and you know, either turn the defender if the defender got too tight or use the time to put someone else in the game if, mm. if he didn't. Since Alan Shearer, really, it was an Alan Shearer. What are you going to say, since Tony Castorino? <laughs> <laughs> I think I was out of the country when Tony was playing. Uh, Palace signing Mitrovic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tell you what was really, what interests me about that game, and Roy obviously was at the game at Craven Cottage. Ryan Sessignon didn't play well when he played away. He, didn't, he struggled. For, and he's a 17 or 18-year-old kid now. So he, he had a really indifferent game. And he wasn't particularly playing well in the second game at home. He was doing all right. But, boy, he still kept his composure to get a goal. And he's had a fabulous season. When you look at a teenager like that, you feel that you've got something a little bit special there. Because even in an, an indifferent time, because he wasn't playing over the two legs, he didn't play nowhere near like he did in the league games. But he still managed to make something happen. And Mitrovic, like Roy said, led the line unbelievably. I, I thought they were tremendous in the, the two games. Um, it'll be a great final. I, Steve Bruce, I was at Gillingham with Steve Bruce. We, we came through the same team. He's got a very experienced, you know, the John Terry's, a Snodgrass in there. He, he's got Glenn Whelan. He's got Jan, um, Yedinak. He, he's got a lot of experience in his team. But there is something about the final that, like, Roy touched on with the contrast of styles. Fulham are a brave side. They will overcommit. They will get their wide guys in dangerous positions. So that will ask a lot of questions of uh, the likes of Villa because they are a team. There's like probably the average age of Villa would probably be late 20s, early 30s. A back four would be older than that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hutton, Chester, Terry and uh, Mohammed, El Mohammed. Yeah. They, they're all over 30, aren't they? Yeah. Matt, when Fulham went out at the playoff stage last season, it felt like what will happen to the team. But they kept the manager, they kept the, the young stars, they gave it another go. One feels if it fell apart this season, it could be quite well, catastrophic. What's your reading well, of it? Well, there's a kind of... I mean, I'm surprised, actually, that he's not been lured away before. I know a couple of Premier League clubs... I mean, as Tony said earlier, there's been enough looking, some of them several times um, in the last year, and um, I know a couple have had him on shortlists, and... Surprised they didn't follow through. I think he's got a reputation as an excellent coach. You can see that on the pitch. Um, and I've actually, there's been rumblings about how settled he is there anyway. Um, the talk that is sort of you know, issues with, as we know, there, there have been issues there about uh, influence from above and, you know, managers being told um, about signings, told about. Data, sort of forced to um, swallow various bits of data that they don't necessarily think they should, that they know better. And um, I'm is it the yeah. owner's boy? It doesn't yeah. have his own. Yeah, there's influence on exactly data on players. Data on players. So I'm told there's been a bit of turbulence. So that, you know, 
he's, he's ripe for plucking away to another club. And I am surprised the Premier League club haven't gone for him. But maybe he's going to take Fulham up there and stick it out. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, a couple of minutes after Fulham have won promotion to the Premier League, there's the Champions League final. What are we thinking? It's Liverpool, I think, ought to be favourites in terms of in terms of how they got there. You could argue any team that knocks out City. Roy, is that fair enough? Or do you just take the view Real Madrid are Real Madrid? They're so practised at winning the final. Yeah, they're you... not. They're the favourites. It's certainly, certainly a game where forwards look like they might be on top, doesn't it? You know, it's two incredible forward lines, really, or forward lines backed up by very inventive midfields. Uh, and both clubs, I suppose, will be concerned. Is our general defensive player and our, our back four and our goalkeeper capable of dealing with the threats that are going to come our way from the... Ronaldo's, the Benzema's, the Isco's, the Modric's, the Crosses, and on the other hand, of course, uh, if you're the, if you're the Real Madrid coach, you'd be a bit concerned about that front three of, of uh, Liverpool. So I think it, it promises to be a very very exciting final. And certainly, watching recently the the semi-final, watching Bayern Munich against Real Madrid, it, at times the game was so open by the sort of standards <laughs> we're used to. That it, it was hard to understand how each team could allow so much time and space to so many good players and get away with it. Um, but I'm, well, I hope, of course, that Liverpool get through. I think it would be nice. I think Real Madrid have certainly won enough in recent years. They shouldn't begrudge Liverpool a chance to win something after such a long period of time when they haven't been able to. So uh, my hope, like with Fulham, will be for Liverpool to do it. But... I've got to say, it'd be a brave man, I think, who would definitely say, I'm convinced that Liverpool will win or Real Madrid will win because both teams have got such enormous potential to win games. And what would concern me if I was a Liverpool manager would be, we're playing against a lot of experience here and you know, I can envisage dominating periods of the game, playing better than them in periods of the game and all of a sudden Ronaldo or Isco or Benzema Score a goal from nothing. Matt, <laughs> Jurgen Klopp doesn't know how to win a final. He's not got a good record, has he? No. No. So what Which can you do? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, you know, the big hope, I think, going as a, 
I suppose neutral is that it's just that Liverpool performer. That, you know, that there's no sense of stage fright against a team like Real Madrid. They've, they've impressed so much of us with the daring. I mean, at times it's been reckless daring, hasn't it? The Roma games, even when they're five 0 up, they thought, you know, blimey, anything can happen. But I, I just, yeah, I just hope they play with. Clearly, they're not going to be abandoned, but they play with that attacking zest that we've enjoyed from them so much this season. I think that's not necessarily easy when you're going into a Champions League game against Real Madrid looking over your shoulder at Ronaldo and whoever else. Is it going to be that easy? That simple, Tony? It's a question of Liverpool just remembering who they are and not getting stage fright and then they'll do it. Um, I'm going to be a brave man. <laughs> um, I can't believe that Real Madrid have got to the final. Have you, they've beaten Dortmund away. They've beaten PSG away and they've beaten Juventus away, okay, to get to the final. The Bayern Munich game was extraordinary because they should have been knocked out comfortably over the two legs. I keep looking at Mo Salah and I keep thinking, Marcelo, who can't defend for Toffee, who is hopeless as a defender. He's fantastic going forward and it fits in the Real Madrid way, but I just can't see how Mo Salah's not going to hurt Marcelo because... And if he starts wandering, which he does, and he does it regular, I just think Mo Salah will just tear him apart because he loves people leaving space. Now, there is a lot of experience there in Real Madrid. Ronaldo's probably been injured for two years and he scored, what, probably in that time 80 goals, but it's quite clear he's been in and out of being injured because he's not, he's not suffering when he's on the pitch, but he's literally, they feel like they're just strapping him up to get him whatever they can to get him on the pitch. There is a side that can be beaten, I feel, in Madrid. I think the one thing we're all going to argue against, they're big-time players. Whether it's Cruz, whether it's Modric, whether it's Benzema, whether it's Ronaldo, there's loads of Ramos. Goalkeeper's not particularly the greatest either. For a Real Madrid keeper, you've got to test him. And I think Liverpool will. So I'm going to be a brave man and I think Liverpool will knock them out. Oh, will knock them out, we'll win it. OK, so Jordan Henderson will be lifting the... Champions League trophy, and that is an irresistible image if you're Gareth Southgate choosing your England captain. Do you quickly, the three of you, well, you, you first, Roy, because you've got more experience of choosing captains than the other two. What, what is it a good idea to leave it late? What do you look for in a captain? Do we pay it too much attention? Yeah, we pay it too much attention. I mean, I think there's no doubt about that. It's a, it's a very prestigious position. As a result, of course, it it carries a weight that sometimes can, can work against the manager. Um, but either of the people that he's mentioned, I mean, Eric Dyer has got leadership qualities, so has Jordan and so has Harry. All three have got good leadership qualities. Um, I would think it's worked out well during the qualifiers. You know, we haven't had this, this uh, definite captain. This is the captain. No one else, you know, should be considered. He swapped it around. I don't see any reason why we, as England fans, should ask anything different of him and he can decide which one he wants because all three will do the job. And the good thing, knowing that those players quite well as I do, because there's not that many of them that I haven't actually worked with, they'll accept any, any of them. You know, they, there won't be any concerns within the group. Well, we would have rather had X or Y as captain. They'll be perfectly happy with whoever is captain, and I'm also convinced they'll be happy uh, to see that captain change during the tournament, if there's any reason to do so. But that's, that's just a feeling I have. Yeah, I think it's one of Gareth's achievements to try and turn down the volume on this whole, whole debate. Um, I mentioned it in print this week, that Brazil have had 16 captains in the last two years, which has been a specific policy sure. because the coach felt that sort of restoring confidence and cohesion after the trauma of the last World Cup, he felt that that's sharing around the responsibility would work, create more of a, a culture rather than worry about one man. And I think that's, you know, it's been a classic English thing. Where's our Roy the Rovers? Where's our Captain Marvel? What do we call Brian Robson? You know, and it's, it's become a bit of a cliche. We've had those players, Matt. That's the, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the, the fact that, that Beckham retires from international football, John Terry doesn't play international football, then Stephen Gerrard and then Wayne Rooney. Basically, that generation there of all these really iconic players, all of whom got over 100 caps. You know, they were... It would have been very difficult for any England manager, uh, me in particular, to go to the press and say, you know, Stephen Gerrard's still playing for England, but he's not going to be captain. Wayne Rooney's playing for England, he's not going to be captain. 
people really just took for granted that these players with their isn't, hundred isn't caps. Isn't that part captain. of our cultural sort of part of the cultural failure that we did, you know, and then that imbues that player who's already a star player and be our leader and be our tal talisman, and that's, yeah, that's that's not how good teams function. I mean, good teams function by being yeah. a team. Well, we, you'd have needed an awful lot of help in the mass media to provide to persuade the general public and I would the have social media. I'd have been a lone voice, I'll give you that. I think you would, and as a result, of course, you know, <coughs> what you don't want as an England manager, Southgate won't want to always be on the back foot in terms of public opinion with everyone thinking, how on earth can he not choose this one as captain? Mm. He can do it now quite easily, A, because the, 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 the mass media will support him in the same way that Matt's supporting him here, by you know, quite rightly pointing out that we don't have that 100-cap legend anymore. We have lots of good players, all of whom with leadership qualities. So why not share it around? It's a tricky one, Captain, because there's people who are captains in dressing rooms and there's captains on the pitch. You know, sometimes you have... Like if you have a Roy Keane, he'd never be your captain in the dressing room, but he'd be your captain on the pitch because he lifts and inspires everybody around him. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky one. I, I don't see it as a big deal with England. I don't, I don't see a bad, you know, obviously Henderson, outstanding for Liverpool, easily be captain for England. Likewise with Kane. I could see one or the other. But both are worthy of the armband. OK, on that note, it's time for um, questions from you. So there are people wandering around with microphones. If you could raise your... I just saw a hand in the corner over there. Thank you. My question's for Roy. Um, two questions, if I may. First one is, what is your greatest night in football or day, the best result that you've achieved? And secondly, there's two Norwich season ticket holders here, and um, I understand that you're quite friendly with Delia. And um, <laughs> once you're done in the big time, I was wondering if you might pop up to Norfolk and uh, give us a hand. <laughs> I suppose the most iconic night or day in football that will always live with me, and there's been so many good ones since. But the one that always comes to mind is in 1976, when I, I joined this team, Harmstad, and you know people talk about great escapes and fairy tale victories, but there's never, there will never be a, a chance for me to, to replicate that year in Harmstad Ball Club in 1976. I joined them when they avoided relegation by goal difference in 1975 and lost six of their first team players. They only signed one, so all the players who'd been in the reserve team got moved up because you know there wasn't a big transfer market in Sweden in those days. And we ended up winning the championship. And we actually secured that the, 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 the day before the last game of the season. It was at a place called North Sherbing, which is quite a long drive from, from Harmstead. So we drive there and we overnight <laughs> and we play the game the next day. And, against with the Audrey with it. So now we're driving home. But in those days, of course, and Tony will remember these days, because it happened in England too, the players had a tendency in, in, in after games to sit in the back of their bus and open the bottles of beer and, and whatever, or the bit of schnapps in Sweden it was as well. And what's more, we'd invite a lot of people onto the bus. There were journalists and friends. So there was a big bus full of people, and it was a, a pretty raucous atmosphere, as you can imagine. And we're driving down this long motorway from North Sherping to, to, to Harmstead, which is about a three and a half hour journey. And about an hour into the journey, the, the general manager of the team suddenly says, hold on, he said, it's, uh, it's 10 to 7. He said, 7 o'clock. He said, they'll be showing this on the TV because it, it, it wasn't like it is today. In Sweden, there was a one, one program on sport every evening called Sports Mirror, and it lasted for about six minutes. And he said, we're going to be on there. They're going to show us, you know, celebrating. He says to the coaster, I said, pull in off the motorway to the next little town you come to. He did no more. We pulled into this little town. I can't remember the name of it. He did no more than jump out, knock on the door of the first door he came to. Guy opens the door. He says, excuse me. He said, I said, I'm the general manager of Harmstead Ball Club. We've just, just won the Swedish League title. Can we come in and watch it on your TV? <laughs> <laughs> and 41 people... <laughs> And many a time I thought, I wonder how many times the guy has told that story. <laughs> so if, if, you, if you ask me just to pick out one night or one day of my life, and of course it's my first job as well, and 
Um, as Tony said, the sackings weren't like they were then. But I mean, I wasn't to know how, how long I was going to be able to last in football. And I thought, well, it's not a bad start in your first job to, to win a, a league title. And then to do it with that sort of style. And it, I don't think Norwich want me, as it happens. I, think, I don't think Norwich... I did speak to Deidre, actually, when I was out of work. And there was some talk that maybe I would go and uh, help. But they didn't want me. So that was... <laughs> they chose someone else. Good evening. My name's Derek, and I support Fulham. And, uh, Roy, I'd just like to thank you for all that pleasure you gave us in the Euro thank you. Uh, final. Thank Maybe you. And the other thing too. was, just as an aside, there was a lovely piece on one of the Fulham websites where a Fulham fan said, he said, I met this well-dressed elderly gentleman on Putney Bridge, and I said, are you confident? And Roy said, yes. So, thank you. Thank My you. question is really to Tony, I suppose. Do you think social media and fans' power is now too great? For example, I've been listening ad nauseum on Talk Sport on uh, 606 to Everton fans saying they want to be entertaining, to Stoke City fans saying they want to be entertaining, to Swansea, to West Brom, every one of these teams that's fired their managers. Is the fans' expectation far too high? The, um, the minority, I feel, what you're, you're talking about, are having a huge say in respect to football. Management, I, it's a real tough one. I've never been a coach or a manager, okay? So when I've been in the inside of the tent, you know, Roy would know Johnny Steele very well. I went and spent a lot of time with Johnny Steele at Luton, watched how he managed. You see all the problems he has to deal with on a daily basis. Sometimes it's like Roy touched on, whole team's injured. You know, you could have your four or five of your top players out. So I think it's a really tough one. You have to take circumstances, but clubs ignore that now. You can be in a, a really difficult position. The board know your situation, but you still lose matches and they, they don't back you. I think that it, we've gone so far away from what we used to think, you know, the loyalty. I was looking at managers a, a couple of months ago and I was looking down Millwall's list of managers of all time. And I went back sort of 70 years, and, you know, and I'm looking back and managers were there for like nine years and then had a seven-year manager and they'd suffered relegation. And they hadn't had a particularly successful time. But it's complete opposite now. Any period of failure, and it can be like Frank de Boer experienced, short term, four games, gone. You know, and I think there is a, a knee-jerk reaction to management. I, I'm glad I didn't do it, and I don't mean that in a way, because I don't know if I... There's a part of me that went, you know what, I'd love to have a go. Just, I got offered a job when I first finished football, and I just felt... I didn't know, I wasn't in a position, I thought, do you know what, this feels bad. I remember having a discussion, the club was Millwall, I went in for a meeting, I chatted to them, and I was working for the Times, and I listened to them, and I was gobsmacked what I was hearing, because they were telling me that we've got 35 pros, we're going to go down to 28, and we're going to lose seven players. So I asked the question, which seven? Your highest earners. Highest earners, best players. Right, Okay. So we go down from 35 to 28, losing seven, seven best players. But if you can sell anybody within that 28 and make money, you can use that. And I remember walking out and thinking, that is impossible. That is what I'm, I'd have to be crazy to even consider taking on a job with, under them circumstances. But you know what? There's lots of guys who go into jobs. I remember talking to Steve Staunton after he took the Ireland job, he lost it, and then he went to Darlington. I remember chatting to him and saying, Steve, what are you doing? Why are you taking Darlington? They haven't got a penny to spend. They're out in all their players. You lose a number of games, you'll be gone. And that's what exactly happened. I, I think unless you're inside and you're privy to what's going on at a football club, I think it's very, very difficult to be a manager. Just want to ask, what's the panel's view about John Joe Shelby? Do you think he should have got a call-up to the England squad? Nat? Uh, I, I don't. I, th I, mean, I think he's been playing very well. He's picks that lovely pass, but again, it's back to what the, the template of those sort of players that Gary's looking at, which is going to be quite box-to-box, -box, and I, I don't think, I mean, Shelby has been making most of uh, the headlines, getting the praise at Newcastle for picking those long passes rather than that profile of player that we were talking about earlier, so I, I, I don't, I can see why in the, in the, the Gareth, and again, I think it's something that Gareth's done very well in the last few games, is establish that template, get the players used to it, and I don't think he quite fits that. Mm. Should the FA have extended 
Gareth Southgate's contract before he's proven himself at tournament level? I would say absolutely not, Matt. <laughs> well, he's got, he's got, so he's got a contract to 2020 with a two-year option thereafter. So, I mean, but then, as Royal, no, then what, are, what are options in, <laughs> if they want to keep you or sack you? They, uh, it's probably more, that's probably more of an issue to do with lawyers and, and payouts. But it's, I think, what I could say, absolutely, they are as desperate for him to get a, a sort of fair wind this summer. And, you know, especially with this young player's I think they, they think that he fits what they want. He fits um, a lot of the sort of modeling they're doing. It's a terrible word, actually. But at St. George's Park, they're trying to create something there. And Gareth's working with a lot of the other coaches. And they're desperate, desperate for him to, you know, say, get, get a decent run. <coughs> calms, calms everything down. And we're not, we're not looking for another England manager in uh, two months. Uh, which teams are you most looking forward to seeing in Russia? And who's going to win it? I'll go, I've, uh, I've, I've, had to, I've had to predict it for uh, our World Cup magazine coming out. I've put my um, uh, five quid on Brazil. Um, I mean, you can look at the squad list. That's, that speaks for itself. I mean, they're huge depth. We don't know about Neymar, you know, coming back from a long injury. But, yeah, huge depth, even if he's not um, all he could be. I've, speaking to a lot of people about um, Tito, the new coach, um, he's apparently exceptional organisation, when I talked about this thing of sharing the captaincy around, apparently he's been very good at creating a cohesion. Um, I think we can say this. We signed Vieira. Can I say that? We signed. I have now. We signed Patrick Vieira to do some World Cup columns for us, and we were talking to him, and he's very, he's very uh, tight for obvious reasons with Edu, um, the former Arsenal player, who's now one of the general coordinator of the Brazil squad, and he, he has some uh, really interesting views on how they've. They re, sort of felt like they've rebuilt the, um, the Brazil mm. squad. So I, I, I've I put them just a notch ahead of all the, the usual suspects, really, which France, Germany, Spain, yeah. um, Argentina have got certainly got players, but I'm not sure they've got that mm. Brazil cohesion. Um, certainly not in qualifying. And I'm, England are a little notch behind them, I'm afraid. There's a lot of good sides in this World Cup, and. You touched on, you know, obviously Brazil, uh, the French, Belgium have got top quality players. Germany is extraordinary what they've got. Got a little striker who's like absolutely blisteringly quick in Werner. I've backed him to be top goal scorer. Timo Werner, I've really fit. I've seen him a lot. He's got a wonderful right foot. He's tiny, but he's blisteringly quick. He's a bit like Owen when he, he came on the scene. If he gets half a yard, he's gone. But then you look at their team and you go, they've got Kimmich, they've got Sane. Kadir is still there. Got Cruz, Tony Cruz. Ozil plays very well for Germany. Not that he doesn't for Arsenal, but he <laughs> plays even better for Germany. But I, I, they've got a really young, exciting team. We we sort of forgot that the Mirosav closers and all them that were there were really experienced guys that were brought in. They still won the World Cup. But this team is electric. There's pace everywhere in the German team. But Spain will be great. I, I actually think there's a lot of good teams. Roy, I'm excited about it. Roy, do you have a particular country no, that no, you're looking no, forward to seeing? Basically, I just agree with everything that, that uh, Matt and Antonio have said. It's very hard to see beyond those teams, I think. But there'll be some pleasant surprises, I'm sure. <laughs> Having worked with Luca now, uh, knowing, of course, Nemanja Matic and seeing him play for Man U, seeing Mitrovic do so well, you know, you'd you be interested yeah. to see how Serbia do. And Croatia have always got some good players. So. Yeah. The great thing about World Cups, you, you get to see players and hear about players that really are not on your radar before because, you know, we, we know a lot about the Premier League and, you know, we, we, we rate our players and can rate them pretty much where they deserve to be rated. But it's very hard to do so with, with the foreign players who we see a little bit less often. And that can be dangerous because... Uh, you know, buying players who do well in World Cup teams, especially the lesser, lesser known World Cup teams, can, can be difficult. Um, I remember the, the Czech players who got transferred to, to Europe after the yeah. 96, and apart from Nedved, they didn't do that well, the rest of them. So Doof. it's a dangerous. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, it'd be interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, World Cup years are always fun, aren't they? And, it's in Russia, it's, so, uh, it's, so what's to worry about? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, when I, I mentioned I played in France, but I, I always like telling this story, but 
I played in France in 94-95 and I played against Zidane and he wasn't, we didn't have all the media, you know, speculation about everybody and all the news that everyone can watch now. And I kept telling everybody about this lad at Bordeaux. I kept saying, you've got to see this lad at Bordeaux, he's unbelievable. Of course he goes to Euro 96 and bombs. Didn't play well at all in Euro 96 in England. And at Juve had already bought him. And then I was so pleased, because afterwards everyone was saying, right, the people who knew me, because it wasn't there. You didn't know about everybody then. And when, of course, when he came, I was so delighted, because he had been exceptional at Bordeaux. I sat with uh, Alex Ferguson, at a, I was covering Manchester at that time, and he was, we were talking about prospects, and he said, yeah, we've been looking at that lad Zidane, not quite sure about him. So, Could I yeah. just add to that story? Yeah. Even, <laughs> even the greats get it horribly wrong sometimes. Um, um, there was a testimonial in Marseille, and Sir Alex Ferguson was my manager for the day. He was a goalkeeper called Pascal Ometer. Well, anyway, and you had a, a stars of a Marseille legends, which was Cantona and a few others. And Zidane played in the same side as me for the Marseille, ex-Marseille players. And Sir Alex was in the dressing room afterwards and he says, how's good you're French? I said, I'm okay. He said, have a word with the 10, see if he'll sign for us. <laughs> so I've looked around and went, because I didn't know the numbers. And, Oh, you Zidane. So I've gone up to Zidane and said to, 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 to him, would you like to send for Man United? And he just went, nah. <laughs> and I, so I didn't know what to say to him. So Alex was literally in the dressing room. It was very funny. He just went, nah. Thank you all so much for coming. Such great questions and being a lovely, lovely audience. And if you'd like to say thank you to a brilliant panel, especially Roy Hodgson. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.